y'all. How you doing? Good, 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 good. Welcome. Um, just welcome to Veritas. Uh, if this is your first time here, thanks for being here. We are really, really glad that you're here. Um, if you would, there's a connect card attached to your bulletin. Um, and that, that just is, is, a, is a way, a, a means for us to kind of learn a little bit about you and, and also a, a means uh, for, for you to, to request more information about Veritas and how to get plugged in with a, with a city group or, or with serving on, on uh, hospitality or with kids or, or anything else like that on Sunday mornings or uh, if you'd like to meet with a leader, anything like that. Uh, and then particularly, one of the things that I, I want to mention explicitly is there is a, a little space on there for you to put a prayer request. Uh, if just anything, if, if you uh, feel like you need prayer for anything in particular, please put that on there. Uh, and we pray for those weekly. Um, a few of us gather on, on Tuesday evenings and, and we'll be uh, working through those and, and praying for those. And I'll pray through those this week as well. And, uh, and, and we just love to, to be able to pray for you. We'd kind of enjoy to be able to pray for you this week. So please put something there, uh, anything. Uh, so also, uh, we have a guest preacher this morning, really, really excited about my friend Billy Otten here this morning. Come on up, Billy. And, uh, Billy's a, a good friend and, um, I've known Billy for a really long time and we just continually bump into each other. And then we just realized maybe we should just stay in contact since we are just always bumping into each other like this. Uh, and he's just, he's a blessing to the church and, uh, really, really thankful for this guy. Uh, and he's on staff at Faith Presbyterian in Cincinnati. Uh, he is the husband of one wife. Uh, thank the Lord. And, uh, and he has four. Three. Three children. Yeah, that I three know children of. Three yeah. children that you know yeah. of right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, three children. And uh, we're just really, really excited to have you. Can I pray for you? Yes. Cool. Father, thanks for Billy. Uh, thank you for uh, your word. And, and Lord, thank you for the, for the means of... Uh, of uh, that, that we get to experience your grace and, and uh, receive your grace through, through the means of the word being proclaimed. And, and we just ask this morning that as Billy preaches that you um, would make the word effectual and that it would pierce hearts and, and help us to grow in grace and in holiness and, and that uh, you would uh, just help us grow in clinging to Jesus, to beholding Jesus and, and, and uh, loving him. Stir our affections for him this morning and, and strengthen us for, for the mission that you've called us to, to, to make disciples of all nations, Lord. Uh, w- would you work in and, and through us here this morning? And, um, and Lord, we thank you for, for particularly the, the uh, eighth commandment and um, all that we're about to learn uh, from, uh, from the eighth commandment here. And so would you, would you uh, work in us as, as we dig into your word together? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Garrison. Good morning. As Garrison said, my name is Billy Otten, um, and I am uh, one of those long-lost sons of Dayton. I did grow up here in the Xenia area uh, in Spring Valley, Ohio, and then I moved away for a bit, but I came back for school. I graduated from Wright State University. Anybody? All right, a few. All right. Um, I also went to the University of Dayton. Spent some time there. Anybody? No? Yeah, some people. Okay. So, um, which is where I met my wife of seven years, and she is here with me also with our three kids. And it's my pleasure to be here with you this morning. I have uh, followed Garrison for some time, and we've been friends for a while, and I have particularly followed what he has been doing here and your efforts here as well. And so it's just a pleasure to be a part of what God has been doing in your midst. So I'm grateful that you would have me. 
and it's my pleasure to be here. Um, you've been in a series on the Ten Commandments, and today we arrive at the Eighth Commandment, which is found in Exodus 20, verse 15. So if you would, please stand with me out of respect for God's Word, and we will hear His Word. Exodus 20, verse 15, the Word of God reads this way. You shall not steal. This is God's word. You can be seated. Well, I have a good friend that on several occasions, more than once, uh, has been used by God to be an evangelist to scam artists. And sometimes we call this scam evangelism or escamgelism. And I think it's a very promising ministry that your church might consider. And on one such occasion, a few months ago, he received a phone call from a man who claimed to represent the IRS, and my friend's name is Aaron, and he told Aaron that uh, an error had been discovered, and it turns out that he owed $7,000 in back taxes to the IRS, and the IRS was suing him to pursue this money. Furthermore, a warrant had been issued for my friend's arrest, uh, and but... Luckily for Aaron, the IRS was willing to settle this debt quickly over the phone. If he would just give them his credit card information, uh, then they could settle this debt of $7,000. Now, you may have heard of this. This is actually an international scam that has been going on since about 2013. Uh, and based on all the reports that have come in from around the country of people who have said that they've received such calls and even have been victims of this scam, it's estimated that scammers have made roughly... $15.5 million in the past three years using this scam. So my friend knew immediately that this was a scam, and any normal person at this point would have just hung up the phone, uh, but my friend is not a normal person. And so he said, well, okay, but before I give you this $7,000, I just want to do a three-way call with the police and confirm that there is indeed a warrant issued for my arrest. And at this point, the man on the other end of the line began to aggressively advise against calling the police. He said, no, if you call the police, they're going to come and arrest you immediately. That's, that's a bad idea. Don't do that. And then my friend called him out, and he said, look, the, the IRS does not make calls like this. I know that this is a scam. Um, and then he went for the jugular, and he said, sir, how would you feel if I was calling your family, your grandmother, your mother, your sister, and trying to convince them to give me $7,000 of their hard-earned money in the same way that you're doing to me. That wouldn't, that wouldn't feel very good for you, sir, would, would that? And there was about a 15-second silence on the other end of the phone. And my friend said, hello, are you there? He said, I'm here. And he said, you're right. The guy on the other end of the phone, he's like, you're right. And then he went in further, and he said, sir, you are making a dishonest living you need to quit your job, you need to walk into your boss's office and tell him that you're quitting and tell him why you're quitting, and you need to tell your boss to quit for the same reason, and then you need to repent of what you're doing here, uh, and if you do that, Jesus will forgive you and he will help you to fix your life and change your life. And the guy is shaken up on the other end of the line. He's, he's like, okay, Aaron, he's, like, he's calling him by his first name now. He's like, Aaron, I'll try, I'll, I'll try to do that. And my friend said, no, don't tell me that you're going to try. If you say you're going to try, you're not going to do it, and you're going to keep doing what you're doing, and you're going to let people walk all over you for the rest of your life, and you're going to continue to live dishonestly, you need to do this now. 
And then the guy had, you know, renewed courage, and he said, okay, okay, Aaron, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do this. And my friend prayed for him over the phone, and then the call ended, and that's, that's what scambangelism is. So I share this story, and this has happened to my friend not just this time, but on several occasions. This is what he does when he gets these, these scam phone calls. So I share this story because I think it's an amazing story, but also it helps to introduce the theme of our text this morning, and that is that our sin has created a culture of fraud, wherein an enormous amount of energy is, is spent trying to illegitimately and dishonestly take what belongs to others in the easiest way possible. And in, it's in this culture that the people of God, as we can see in this command, are called to be an honest people who respect the property rights of others. And so I just want to look at three things from this text this morning to see, well, what do we need to see in order to not steal in order to no longer steal and in order to be what God calls us to be. And we need to see three things. One, that God gives property rights. Two, that sin violates property, property rights. And three, that grace restores property rights. So that's where we're going this morning. So the first thing to see is that God gives property rights. Now, the, f the very first thing that we should see from this command and the first thing that the Israelites coming out of Egypt would have seen is that the reason that anyone has property rights at all, the reason that any of us have anything that we can call our own, anything that we have dominion over, is because God graciously gives to us rights over his creation. It's actually an incredible thing. It shows us the amazing generosity of the God that we serve. Let's remember that this command was originally given to the Israelites who had previously been slaves in Egypt for the past several hundred years. Slavery was all that they had known. And during this time, they were greatly oppressed. All of the work that they did, no matter how hard they worked, they could not improve their own situation. It didn't go to benefit them. It went to benefit the nation that ruled over them, which was the nation of Egypt, not themselves, which is kind of the definition of oppression, no matter how hard they worked. It didn't benefit them at all. It would just benefit Egypt. They had no inheritance rights. The only thing that their children could hope to inherit from their parents was further slavery and, of course, the promises of God, if anyone still believed in those. They had no property, nothing that they could really call their own. They themselves were property, of the nation of Egypt. I mean, they were just like the situation that Rick and Alexandria is in right now with Negan. Am I right? I mean, what Rick needs to do is to call out to Yahweh to raise up a deliverer, but I, I don't think he's going to do that. You guys obviously don't follow The Walking Dead. <laughs> Tune in tonight, I'm telling you. It's, you're seeing the Old Testament unfold on AMC every Sunday night at 9. So, all right. But the people of Israel did remember the promises that God had given to their ancestor, to Abraham. And so they cried out to the God of Abraham to make good on his word and to come and deliver them. And then Yahweh rose up and he came to their deliverance by sending an 80-year-old man to defy Pharaoh and to defeat the kingdom of Egypt. And God did this with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. He brought his people out of the land of slavery in order to bring them into his land, 
which was the land of Canaan. And so I just want us to remember a few things about what the scriptures say about the land of Canaan that God was bringing his people into. First of all, the scriptures continually affirm that Canaan was God's land. It was his property. All of the earth belongs to God, but Canaan especially was God's land, the land of where he is choosing to dwell and the land that he would give to his people Israel. Furthermore, Canaan was not a wilderness. It was not an uninhabitable land, but it was a good and a fruitful land. It was a land full of fig trees that the Israelites did not plant. It was a land full of tilled fields and vineyards that the Israelites did not till. It was a land full of cisterns that they did not dig. It was a land of fortified cities that they did not build. In other words, it was a land that had been prepared especially for them ready for them to go in and to inhabit it. It was a good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And finally, God was graciously giving this land, though it was his land, he was giving the rights of this land to Israel to be an everlasting possession. As God said to Abraham, I'm going to give it to you and to your descendants forever, and it will always be theirs. So in summary, because of God's gracious salvation that he was working on behalf of his people, They were moving from a situation of slavery and of oppression to a situation where they were going to be suddenly very wealthy in a situation where for the first time in their lives, they were going to have property. They were going to have something that they could call their own. God was, their God was giving this to them. And so when they heard, you shall not steal, this at least meant for them that God was guaranteeing that each tribe each family and each individual would have certain private property rights that could not be violated. God was giving his land and his stuff to Israel, and no one would be able to take it away from them anymore. A very different situation than what they were coming out of. So God gives property rights over his creation to his people. The the amazing generosity of our God is the first thing there that we should see. So what does that mean for you and me? Well, there's many things that we can talk about here, but I just want to hone in maybe on one thing, one, one thing we can take away from that point. If you understand that all private property comes from the generosity of God, all private property comes from the generosity of God, this alone will go a long way toward guarding you from violating this command not to steal because it will cultivate thanksgiving in your heart. It will will make you into a thankful person. Think about it this way. The land of Canaan that God was bringing his people into was by no means owed to the Israelites. They They did nothing to deserve it, and they did nothing to win it for themselves. It was theirs purely by God's free and gracious promises. When they're on the plains of Moab in Deuteronomy, and they're about to enter into the land to take possession of it, God gives them two warnings in Deuteronomy 7 and 9, and this is what he says to them, basically. Uh, In summary, he says, look, first thing, in time to come, after you have gone in and taken possession of the land, don't think that you own this land because you were strong and your own abilities won it for you. Always remember that you were very weak. You were a small people that had just come out of slavery. Always remember that you have what you have, because I gave it to you, because I graciously gave it to you. And he says, too, now in times to come, when you have come in and taken possession of this land, don't think 
that you own this land because you were righteous and you deserved it and everyone else was wicked. In reality, you were a stubborn and sinful people. You were sinning against me up until the moment that I brought you into this land. Never forget that. Always remember that you own this land because I graciously gave it to you because of my grace. Now, the, if, if they understood this, and if we understand this about our own stuff, the only appropriate response is thanksgiving. That's the only thing that we can do. I am convinced that the default posture of the Christian life, for this reason alone, should be thanksgiving. It should just be our, our mode of operation is that we are giving thanks to God. We just cannot believe what God has done for us and his generosity toward us because our story is the same as theirs. Everything that we have that we can call our own, all that we have dominion over, all of our stuff came to us not because of our own righteousness, not because of our own abilities, not because of anything that we did to deserve it, but because of the grace and the generosity of our God. God created your body, for example, and maintains your health. God gave you the resources and the opportunities and the mind and the upbringing to get the education that you have. God is the one that has opened the doors for you to get the job that you have currently. God is the one that is upholding your life right now. And this should cause us just to be amazingly thankful. Before we bring any complaint to God, before we complain about our situation to others, the baseline of our life needs to be thanksgiving. Oftentimes for us, though, our lives are characterized, if things are going poorly, by malcontent, anger, bitterness towards others, even jealousy over what others have, or if things are going well, our lives are characterized by pride and in our own victories and in our own accomplishments. Neither of these is the Christian story. Just look at your Facebook feed and your friend's Facebook feeds. They're either telling one of those two stories. Either I'm a victim and things have gone poorly for me and I'm really angry because I didn't get what I deserved. Or, man, I did really well. And look what I did and look at all that I've accomplished through my own goodness and abilities. But the Christian story is I am sinful and I am weak, but look at what my God has done for me. And I just want to take a moment to give thanks to my God. If you are that kind of person, you are really going to be a blessing to others because you are going to lift their eyes up to this generous God. So this is why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances. It's the baseline of our life. So all of us have something that we can call our own because God is a generous God who gives private property. It's amazing that any of us own anything at all that cannot be stolen from us. And so this is the first thing that we should see. But next we should see that sin violates private property. Sin violates the property rights of others. All sin is a violation of the property rights of others. Whenever we sin, no matter what it is, we are violating the property rights of others. Broadly speaking, whenever we sin, we are somehow taking something that does not belong to us. And when you think about it this way, you can see how all of the commandments really sort of become the same commandment at the end. But here's just a few examples. Murder is the unjust taking of an innocent life. Adultery is the taking of someone else's spouse. Idolatry is robbing God 
of the glory that belongs to him alone. Dishonoring parents and dishonoring superiors uh, is robbing them of the honor that we owe to them, the honor that is their right. So all sin really can be understood as, se- as stealing. And so what I want to do here is I want to convince you that you are guilty of violating this command. And here's how I'm going to do it. We're going to start with the most obvious forms of stealing, things that everyone would point out and say, yep, that's stealing. And then we're going to move to more subtle forms of stealing that we don't always recognize as stealing, but are are just as heinous and are just as guilty of violating this command. And if you are anything like me, as as we go down the list, you're going to try to excuse yourself and to say, no, I'm not guilty of that, or no, I'm not guilty of that. But my hope is to make it more and more difficult for you to do that so that at the end of this, before we talk about Jesus and the solution to our sin, we all are persuaded that we have indeed violated this command. But we're going to do this by looking at two ways, two main ways that this command is violated. And I want you to think of them as two big boxes. I'm going to name them right now, and then we'll go back and unpack, unpack them one at a time. So there's two ways that we violate this command. One by taking something that God has not given to us, or two, by withholding something that God has commanded us to give. Those are the two ways, generally speaking. Some have called it uh, wrong-taking or wrong-keeping. So either by taking something that God has not given to us or withholding something God has commanded us to give. So first, taking something that God has not given to us. Sometimes this is done by force, and this is what we would all call the stealing. It's incredibly obvious. This is when we use our strength, whether it would be physical, uh, economic, social, racial, political, or otherwise, whatever kind of strength that we have, we use that strength to overpower someone weaker than us and take for ourselves what really belongs to them. As an illustration, Joseph, the story of Joseph in in the latter chapters of Genesis, he was a victim of theft by force. He was one of the youngest of 12. Uh, He was likely his father's favored son, and there was all kinds of family tension in Jacob's family because of polygamy and because of inheritance disputes and all that kind of stuff, and Joseph was one of the favored sons. And so his brothers did not like him at all, and he sort of knew this, and he sort of antagonized them about this. One day he went out to the field where they were working away from home and they decided that they were going to overpower him. They were going to band together to overpower him, to throw him down a well. And then when opportunity arose, they forcefully sold him into, into sl- to slave traders who were headed down to Egypt. So he was forcefully stolen from his home and his life was forcefully stolen from him. And you could even say that one of the main reasons that Israel fell into slavery in Egypt to begin with was because of this first act of theft. So for us, taking something by force is particularly obvious and heinous. We're not guilty of that, right? Well, think about this. Have you ever used your strength, whatever kind of strength it is, physical, economic, social, to overpower someone weaker than you? Because you can and because they have no one to defend them and to take something that belongs to them. to them, This is something that is particularly easy for people in power to do. So employers can overpower their employees unjustly. Police officers can unjustly overpower the citizens that they're sworn to protect. It's possible for them to do that. Husbands can unjustly overpower their wives. 
due to physical and social strength. Parents can unjustly overpower their children. So if you have power, I'm just going to say this and we'll move on. If you have power, beware that you are not using it to oppress and steal from those who don't. Church authorities can unjustly use power to oppress those who are under them and to take things from them. If you do this, you're violating this command and you need to repent. But we all know that. So let's move on. Other times this is done by deceit. This is a little less obvious, but this is when we deceive others into giving us what we want under false pretenses. And the story of the IRS scammer would be an obvious example of that. In that situation, if my friend was deceived, he would have willingly given $7,000, but it's still stealing because it's under false pretenses. He was deceived into giving that money. We don't do that kind of thing, probably. We're not the IRS scammer guy. But here's another scam. Think about this one. Think about that single mom who is seriously struggling financially and is desperately looking for a working man who will come in and help, who will take responsibility for her, who will take responsibility for her children. And she is struggling so much that she is even willing to give her body to men who might be interested in her in the hopes that maybe they would stick around. And there are plenty of men out there who prey on women like this. Plenty of women out there, sorry, plenty of men out there who are willing to take what she is offering and to lead her to believe under false pretenses that maybe they will stick around when in reality they have no intention of committing themselves to this woman and to her children. Now, if you do something like this, you're committing all kinds of sin, but you're also stealing. You're stealing this woman's heart. Uh, You are getting her to give something to you under false pretenses. This also is in violation of this command. So maybe you, maybe you have some bad relationships like this where you are fooling others into giving you something that you want under false pretenses. And if this is you, then you need to repent. You're violating this command. So that is box one. Box two, withholding something that God has commanded us to give. And it's going to get a bit more subtle now. I am probably cover much more of us now, but sometimes this is done through unfaithfulness. We can withhold what God has commanded us to give through unfaithfulness. And this is when we give someone our word that we will do something and then fail to deliver. When we say that we're going to do something, but what we actually deliver is less than or different. So a few examples here. Let's think about the employee-employer relationship. If you are an employer, maybe you own a business, or maybe you've recently hired someone to do some work on your house or something like that, Uh, you're an employer, and you come to an agreement with your employee concerning what you will pay them for the work that they've done. If, once your employee performs the work, if you pay them less, if you undervalue their work, if if you pay them something that is less than what they're really worth, Uh, If you delay paying them, or if you don't pay them at all, then you're stealing from them. Even though the money has been in your pocket the whole time, it's theirs because of the agreement that you made with them, and you are robbing them. Leviticus 19.13 puts it this way, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. In other words, when someone does work for you, you pay them on that day. Otherwise, it's their money. They did the work, and you are robbing from them. If you're an employee, like many of us are, 
That means that you have sold your time and your energy to an employer, and you've said you're going to do a good job for them. Are they getting what they've paid for? When you go to work, do you work to the best of your ability so that they're getting the value for their dollar that they've given to you, otherwise you're robbing from them. Or if you make a product, something like that, is it an excellent product that you're putting out there on the market or is it something that just falls apart after the buyer gets it home? That is also a form of unfaithfulness and a form of robbery. Um, here's an example if you're selling something. A, a while ago I was selling a truck that I had. The market value of the truck was about $2,500. I knew that the truck needed about $1,000 worth of work. I could have hidden that. I could, I could have hidden that. I put it on Craigslist. I could have been dishonest about that and just, just say, hey, I'm selling it for $2,500, knowing that if someone bought it for that price, they would be getting ripped off. Our world is full of this. And if we would only heed this command not to steal, what would change about our economy? What would change about the way that we buy and sell? What would change about the way that our lives work. L life would work a little bit better, wouldn't it, if we would just obey this command? I mean, this is the wisdom of God. So what I ended up doing with this was I just told, it took me a while to sell it because everybody who called about it, I told them, look, I sold it for 1200 bucks, and I said, if you buy this truck, you, you need to plan on putting $1,000 into it. Here's everything that's wrong with it. And finally, someone came along and bought it. But if I, if I wouldn't have done that, I would have been robbing from whoever I sold it to because I knew something about the truck that I wasn't saying. I was stealing from, I would have been stealing from them. And lastly, sometimes this is done through stinginess. We can withhold what God has commanded to give through stinginess, but it's not just stinginess. It's truly stealing. This is when we act like, this is when we act like we are the ultimate owners of all of our stuff. In reality, as we saw in the first point, all of our stuff belongs to God. It's his, and we are simply custodians and caretakers of his property. But when we treat ourselves as lords over God's property that he has entrusted to us, we are robbing from God, and we're robbing from others because we are taking what is really God's. Here's a few examples. Leviticus 19.10 says this, You shall not strip your vineyard bare, Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard, but you shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So the Israelites were not allowed to completely harvest their fields. They had to leave some of it for the poor and for the sojourner to be able to come and gather so that they could be fed. In other words, um, some of their income was to go to help the poor. They were not allowed to use all of it. Some of it was for the poor. They were to budget for generosity. Do you have a line item in your budget designated generosity? This is what God commands. Some of the stuff that he has entrusted to you is for the poor. And if you don't honor that, you are robbing from God and from them because it's God's stuff. So we can't just seize all of it and think that we can consume everything that we have. Here's a second example. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18 says this. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So God has commanded that some of the stuff that he has given to us, that we would set aside to give 
to his purposes, namely, in this age, the preaching of the gospel and to gospel ministers. Uh, this is sometimes referred to as a tithe when we give some of our funds to the church. If you, don't, if you belong to the church and if you don't tithe, it's not just that you're being stingy or it's not just that you're being tight with your finances. You are robbing from God because it's his stuff and he has, that he's entrusted to you and he's commanded that some of it would be used for this. But you get to live on all of this. That's the generosity of our God. You get to live on all of this stuff that he's given to you, and he has said to set aside some for certain purposes. And if we don't do that, we're violating this command. So all sin somehow violates the property rights of others, and because we all sin, we're all guilty of violating this command in some way. We're just radically less than what God has intended us to be on this front but this command is not just in Scripture to expose our sin. It is also here to, to give us a glimpse of the face of our Redeemer. And so, finally, we should see that it is grace that restores property rights. When we steal from one another in obvious or subtle ways, and when we rob from God, as you can see through some of what we've already said, uh, it just destroys our world, and it destroys our relationships with each other, and it just creates a bad world to live in. Who wants to live in that world? Um, but in the wisdom and the grace of God, God built a process into the law whereby broken relationships and broken societies could be restored. One very interesting thing that many commentators have noted about this command in particular is that this is the only command of all of the Ten Commandments except for coveting that is not a capital offense. So in other words, uh, the murderer was to be put to death. The adulterer was to be put to death. The one who violated the Sabbath command was to be put to death. But this command is different. The thief's penalty, once he realized his sin, was that he was required to restore what he had stolen and to give more than what he stole to the person that he harmed. So the solution to stealing is not just to stop stealing. It's not just don't steal. But even in the Old Testament, it and it wasn't even simply give back what you stole, but the real solution to stealing was generosity. The real opposite of stealing is generous giving. Uh, one place where we see this in what was, is in what was called the guilt offering. In Leviticus 6, 1 through 7, you can read about it. But when someone defrauded their neighbor of uh, something that belonged to them through deceit or robbery, and then they realized their sin, they were to do two things. They were to bring an offering to the priest to make atonement for them before God, and then they were to go to the one that they had stolen from and offended and personally restore to their neighbor the damages that they caused to give it back and then add an extra 20% to whatever it is that they took. So if an Israelite defrauded their neighbor of 100 shekels, they were to go to them and give them 120 extra. And you can see how this might go a long way in both reforming the criminal, making them do something like that, uh, restoring the victim, making the victim whole, making the, the victim better off than before they were harmed, and then also even restoring the broken relationship. It's a, it's a system of reconciliation. Here's the point for us. Experiencing the grace of God does not just cause us to stop stealing from each other. It causes us to become people who delight in giving.
the grace of God changes us, not just by making us stop stealing, but by making us want to give. And if you are someone who delights in giving, you can't be a person that steals. This is exactly what happened with, with Zacchaeus. If you remember in the New Testament in Luke, Zacchaeus was a Jewish man who worked for the Roman government as a tax collector. And like many tax collectors of his day, he abused his power. He took from his fellow Israelites more than he was required to take. So he stole from them. He got rich. His neighbors suffered, and everybody hated him for it. He didn't have any friends, but he had a lot of money. But when Jesus came to town, it's a thief like Zacchaeus that Jesus chose to be the special object of his love. When he came to town, he says, Zacchaeus, I have to stay with you today, of course. And Zacchaeus perceived this to be the grace of God reaching into his life. And this is his response. It says that he stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. This is over and above what the law commanded. He said, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So Zacchaeus sought to fix his relationships with his neighbors by restoring what he stole from them because the law required it, yes, but also because grace, it's grace that empowered it. So how do we get to this place? How do we get from people who have a tendency to take and to steal to people who love to give, to people who are generous? There's only one way that I know of, and it is by continually experiencing the radical grace of Jesus Christ to us on the cross. Because of sin, we have thieving hearts that lead us to take what we shouldn't and to keep what we should be giving away, and we need new hearts. Um, but this is the heart of our Savior toward us in 2 Corinthians 8 9. Paul says this, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You know, Jesus was crucified between two thieves. He was included with the sinners. He died a thief's death on the cross. And on the cross, he spent every last dollar that he had so that his people could have a guaranteed inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth, which is his land. He spent it all so that we could have that, his stuff. And indeed, he spent everything so that we could have the ultimate treasure, which is fellowship with God himself. If you understand this grace, you will not be able to steal because you will be so busy being generous. It's like, I'll, and I'm going to close with this, but it's, it's Jean Valjean, who's my literary hero, and Les Miserables was a thief. And he was a thief up until the moment where he experienced a radical act of grace. It wasn't the prison system that was able to reform him, but when he is confronted with the priest who he stole the, the silver from, and the priest has an opportunity to throw him back into the judicial system, but he doesn't. Instead, he gives him an amazing amount of wealth. Jean Valjean is changed and for the rest of his life becomes an amazingly generous man who even gives his life to save uh, the poor child Cassette. And if you know the musical, this is his song about grace when he's thinking about his confrontation with the priest. My wife is shaking her head, no, but I got to do it. And he says, how could I allow this man 
to touch my soul and teach me love. He treated me like any other. He gave me his trust. He called me brother. My life he claimed for God above. Can such things be when I had come to hate the world, this world that always hated me? I'm sorry, I had to do that. That was his song. If you know Jesus, that is your song. That's your song. May we know that more and may we sing that song. To that end, let us pray. Our God, we give you thanks for your radical generosity toward us, even before we have ever sinned, even before we've ever recognized our sin. You have been radically generous to us in giving us your creation. Lord, we have violated your commands in this area. We've been dissatisfied with what we've had. We've We've wrongly taken, we've wrongly kept. Help us to repent of that. Help us to recognize that in our own lives. And we thank you again for your radical grace in giving your son so that we could have an inheritance, his inheritance, in the new heavens and new earth. We come to you in his name. Amen.